I want to begin by telling you this. Um, first of all, it's great to be here. My wife and I have four kids. We live in California. We were having a hard time figuring out why we had four kids. We've got that figured out, and now it stopped. So we're stopping at four. Um, we had two boys, thought we were done, and then Carol contracted pregnancy a third time. Went to the doctor to find out if it was a boy or a girl. Uh, I arrived home. I was teaching at a seminary back then. I get home, and I said, well, a boy or girl? I was hoping for one or the other. And she said, we better go in the back bedroom. I'm thinking that's how we got here in the first place, but I go back there. She said, you better sit down. I sit down on the bed. She reached into her pocket and pulled out a packet of double mint chewing gum. And I said, and she went, we're having twins. And I now have two boys in college and identical 18-year-old twin daughters. And yes, you're applauding because it wasn't you. The, <laughs> and one of my daughters a year ago came home from school and said, Dad, i got to write a biography on somebody that's a Christian leader. And she said, she looked at me and said, I'm writing a biography on you. And I have 18 questions and you have to answer them all. So we go out in the backyard. I live in California, so we have a hot tub. So we go out in the backyard. We sit in the hot tub, and she fires 18 questions at me. It took about two hours. Her last question was one of the most profound questions I think I've ever been asked. She looked at me and said, what is the single most important thing you do as a pastor? And I looked at her and said, that's easy, honey. The single most important thing I do as a pastor, and here it is, is make sure I stay encouraged. And if I were to ask you that question, what's the single most important thing you do as a mom, as a dad? What's the most important thing you do as a leader, as a business person? What's the most important thing you do? I looked at Leslie and said, if I'm not encouraged, I'm not going to be the pastor God wants me to be. If I'm not encouraged, I'm not going to be the husband God wants me to be. I looked at my daughter and said, if I'm not encouraged, I am not going to be the dad God wants me to be for you. The single most important thing I do is make sure I stay encouraged. And so I'm going to talk about unleashing the power of hope and encouragement in your life because I believe that it is the single most important thing you can do. The Bible would echo that. Check out the verse on the top of your outline. First Californians or First Corinthians <laughs> chapter 13, verse 13 says this. Now these three things remain. Now the Bible is about to expose its three most important values and here they are. Faith and the second one is hope and the third one is Love. And you know, the first time I read that verse, I thought, we talk about two of those three all the time. We talk about faith all the time. Books are written on faith. Every church has a statement of faith. Nobody ever hires a pastor without knowing what is your statement of faith. We talk about faith all the time. We also talk about love all the time. Songs are written about it. Movies are made about it. Uh, churches are built on it. Nobody ever talks about the subject of hope, but God says, it's in the big three. It means so much to me. Two years ago, I set a goal for the year. I'm a big believer in setting low goals and hitting them, okay? You know, so like my goal this year is to gain weight, okay? Uh, so, and, and to lose hair. The, so the, actually, two years ago, my only goal for the entire year was to increase my hope level because I realized if it went up, everything else went up with it. 
Okay? Now the question is this, what's the enemy of hope? And here it is, discouragement. And so rapid fire, I have a lot to cover with you. A rapid fire, I want to walk through the problem with discouragement, the power of discouragement, and then does God have any principles for having moving from discouragement to hope and living in hope? And there they are. Number one is this, the problem with discouragement is this, every single person I can find in the Bible had to bounce back from discouragement. And as I walk through here, just kind of mentally make Make a list of any of these you're going through. Moses had to bounce back from failure. That ever happened to anybody in here? Uh, Moses also had to bounce back from lack of encouragement from the people he was following. Okay? Some of you moms get that. I mean, most of your kids aren't walking up to you saying, Mother, I would like to thank you for grounding me. It is building character. Okay? Probably has an average. John Mark had to bounce back from rejection by a Christian leader. Nehemiah had to bounce back from literally discouragement with his circumstances. Peter, he was discouraged by himself, and Jesus was discouraged or could have been by other people. Joseph had to bounce back from mistreatment from a dysfunctional family. Anybody in here know what that's like? Okay. He had to bounce back and not let his dysfunctional past limit his future. Hope did that for him. Elijah had to bounce back from personal criticism. I love Elijah, great Old Testament prophet. He ends up taking on 400 prophets of Baal, wipes them all out. Criticism from one woman makes him hide in a cave. Okay? And you look at these great men and women of God, and they all had to bounce back from something. Lazarus, he had to bounce back from being dead. Okay? And so the problem with this discouragement, we are all, it's something we've all got to bounce back from. Now, the second thing is this, the power of discouragement. The real problem with discouragement is how powerful it is. Let me give you four facts about discouragement. Number one, it's a universal disease. We all get it. Would you agree? Okay, matter of fact, right, right in your setting, would you raise your hand if you've been discouraged in the last three months? Watch this. If their hand didn't go up, they're lying. Okay? Second is this. It's a repeating disease. You can catch it more than one time. It's a universal repeating. Third, it is a contagious disease. You can catch discouragement from people around you. Do you know anybody, the minute you're around them, discouragement is automatic I mean, it's just automatic with it, okay? I see people coming, and I know discouragement is on the way, okay? And it's a highly contagious disease. It's universal, repeating, contagious. And here's the real problem. It's deadly. The real problem is this. It is a deadly disease. It can wreck your life. It can ruin your relationships. And if you're taking notes, jot this down in your Bible or on notes somewhere. Just write this down. Discouragement always precedes destruction. Discouragement always precedes destruction. Almost everything I've seen become destroyed, get destroyed, happened because of discouragement. I've seen almost every marriage I've ever seen end up being destroyed. Discouragement preceded that. Nobody ever goes, man, I'm so in love with my wife. I think I'm going to get a divorce. No, discouragement precedes that. Every teenager I've seen walk away from God, it was preceded by discouragement. Every kid dropped out of school, it was preceded by discouragement. Discouragement always precedes destruction, okay? And so the million-dollar question is this, is there a way, no matter how discouraged I am, to replace that with hope? Now, glad you asked, okay? A great example of this in the Bible is Nehemiah. And he talks about replacing discouragement with hope. And I want to give you the setting for this because you won't understand the verse of this. Okay? This is going to be one minute of Old Testament history. Okay? God's people were in a united kingdom. 
okay? They, for various reasons, divided. Ten of the tribes went north. Two of the tribes went to the south. The two tribes that went to the south formed the nation of Judah, and their capital was in Jerusalem. In 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon goes over and attacks Jerusalem, breaks down the wall of protection around the city, invades, takes all of God's people captive, and hauls all of those people over to Babylon. And they are in Babylon for how long? Does anybody know? 70 long years, okay? The Bible calls that the exile or the captivity, and they are there for a long time, okay? At the end of 70 years, the Babylonians come in and they say, hey, thanks for coming. It's been great having you here. Y'all can go home. And so they start going back to Jerusalem in three waves. The first wave is led by a guy with a really cool name. His name is Zerubbabel. Okay? So Zerubbabel takes a group of people back. The first thing they should get done when they get back there is to rebuild the wall of protection around Jerusalem. They fail to do that, and it stays in shambles. Okay? Ezra, years later, about 50, 60 years later, Ezra moves back with a second wave of people, and again, they fail to get the wall of protection built around this city. Okay? It is, get this, 92 years later, 92 years of failure, 92 years of living in the rubble, 92 years of discouragement, 92 years of living in fear. It is 92 years later, and Nehemiah's brothers have visited Jerusalem. They arrive back. Nehemiah says, hey, how's it going with Jerusalem? How's everybody doing? And they say, man, it is in bad shape. Here's the verse. Read it for yourself. Then I, uh, they, well, they said to Nehemiah, man, it's in bad shape. Nehemiah decides to go there, and notice he does not minimize the problem. He says this, Nehemiah says to the people of Jerusalem, you see the trouble we are in, Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. He does not minimize how discouraging these circumstances are. Okay? And he then says these words, now come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. And some of you know this story. Nehemiah has moved there. One guy with hope arrives on the situation, and in 52 days, they get a wall built that people said couldn't happen for 92 years. Why? What was the difference? One guy had hope, and everybody else was stuck in discouragement. And so the question is this, how do you move out of discouragement and become filled with hope to the point where because of you, other people see things happen in their life, your kids, your business, other things get rebuilt that will never get rebuilt if hope doesn't get rekindled in my soul. And when I study the book of Nehemiah, which I have now for about 20 years, four things keep surfacing that are essential for hope. And here they are. And number one starts with kind of a surprise. Number one is this, refresh your spirit. It starts with this, I start by refreshing my spirit. The starting point of moving away from discouragement and fear and depression and to living with hope is it's all about recharging my batteries and recharging my spirit, which means I think it's almost impossible without God. I love this story. A lady in California sent me this. Last week, I took my children to a restaurant. My six-year-old son asked if he could say grace. My six-year-old son never does anything quietly. So out loud, so the whole restaurant heard, he said these words, God is good. God is great. Thank you, Lord, for the food, and I will thank you even more if mom gets us ice cream for dessert. And liberty and justice for all, amen. <laughs> Along with laughter from the other customers nearby, I heard a woman remark, that's what's wrong with this country today. Kids today don't even know how to pray. Asking God for ice cream, why I never. 
My son heard that lady and burst into tears and looked at me and said, did I do it wrong? Is God mad at me? As I held him and assured him, he had certainly, certainly not done anything wrong. An elderly gentleman nearby who heard the whole ruckus stood up and slowly approached the table. He leaned down, winked at my son, and then quietly said, young man, I happen to know God. I happen to know that God thought that was a terrific prayer. My son looked at him and said, really? And then he said, cross my heart. Then he nodded to the lady whose remark started the whole mess and said, too bad she doesn't ask God for ice cream. Little ice cream's good for the soul sometimes. <laughs> Can I get an amen from some of you on this? Absolutely. <laughs> this lady says, naturally, at the end of that meal, I bought my son the biggest dish of ice cream they would bring him. They set it right in front of him. His eyes got real big. And then without a word, he picked it up, walked over to the lady, set it in front of her and said, here, lady, this is for you. Ice cream's good for the soul sometimes. My soul's good already. Is that great or what? The condition of our soul is going to drive whether or not we are discouraged. And notice Nehemiah at the start of chapter 1, he is in deep discouragement, but he doesn't stay there. Check this out. When, he, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Now, write in your Bible and your notes, put a little line right there. And it gets worse. For some days I mourned. This guy is not bouncing back from discouragement, but here it comes. He says, I mourned and then he says, I fasted. And then I prayed before the God of heaven. And then his eyes get off of his circumstances and back onto God. And he starts saying, oh, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments. And right there, Nehemiah's, his eyes get off of his circumstances and they get back onto God and his spirit goes with him and his spirit soars and he never recovers and neither do the people in Jerusalem recover from that, okay? I grew up close to Disneyland, which is kind of a cool thing. And what a lot of people don't know is this, Walt Disney, according to his daughter, Diane, who wrote a biography about her dad, she said he was a normal dad. She said, matter of fact, he tried to be as normal as you could be for being Walt Disney, okay? And so she said, uh, I would come home from school. He'd do my homework with me. He took me to school every day. He was just a normal dad. She said, matter of fact, I got to fifth, uh, no, fifth, she was uh, five years old, went to kindergarten, and I had no clue who my dad really was. And she said, and I discovered it on the first day of kindergarten. I sat in the middle of the room. All the students were introducing themselves, and she got, she said, got to me, and I said, my name's Diane Disney. And the whole class went crazy. And the teachers quieted him down, and she said, I almost started crying. I was something wrong. And the teacher said, no, everybody's just excited. She said, honey, say your name again. My, my name's Diane Disney. Well, the whole class goes crazy again. And then she said, well, calm down. She said, honey, um, I think I can tell you why the students are all excited. She said, but what's your dad's name? My dad's name's Walter. Well, the class goes crazy again. And the teacher looked at her and said, let me tell you why everybody's excited. Your dad is Walt Disney. She said, yeah, Walter Disney. She said, no, your dad's Walt Disney. Disneyland, Disney, Mickey Mouse Club, Disney, that's your dad. She said, I had no idea. <laughs> she said, I went home that day. She said, my dad was sitting in a chair reading a newspaper. She said, I walked up to my dad. I tore the newspaper out of his hand, put my little hands on my little hips, stared right at him and said, you never told me you were Walt Disney. <laughs> and then she said that, she said, I walked around dazed, 
for a month, stunned by who my father was. Shouldn't that be us? Most of us are walking around depressed by our circumstances and despondent about the future and all that kind of stuff. And Nehemiah starts there, but he doesn't stay there. And through his prayer life and through his focus, he gets his eyes back onto God and he ends up being stunned by who his father is. Okay? It's one of the great things I love about a worship service like the one you're in. It gets our eyes off of ourselves, back onto walking around. And some of you, you're going to be walking around in a daze for a week, stunned by who your father was. Your hope level is going to go up with it, and everything else is going to spill out from that. Number one is this, refresh your spirit. The second two actually go together, which is this, rely on God. Rely on God. And a sign that I'm relying on God is this. I refocus on serving. I refocus on serving. And I love what happens in Nehemiah chapter 2. When you start relying on God and doing some new things, you're going to end up getting some opposition. Okay? I'm sure that, Craig, has never happened around life, but I'm sure you're going to get a little opposition. Okay? And it comes to the territory. And notice this. They start rebuilding the wall. Not everybody's thrilled. But when Sanballat the Horonite... And Tobiah the Ammonite, basically the Horonite and the Ammonite, get up tight. And here's it, here it comes. And Geshem the Aram heard it. They mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And here's Nehemiah's great answer. So I answered them and said this, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will arise and build. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will arise and build, and it made all the difference in the world, okay? And I want to pause here and give you kind of my personal testimony about why that verse means so much to me. I'm a recovering fear-aholic, okay? I'm a recovering discouragement-aholic. And when I look at that kind of verse, I actually put that verse in my bathroom mirror and kept it up every morning for two years. The God of heaven will give us success. We as servants will arise and build. That kept me going, okay? Um, a few years ago, I was having a great time not being a pastor. Okay, you gotta be crazy to be a pastor. You get way too much blame, way too much credit. Neither one of those is good. And I was having a great time not being a pastor. I was writing books, traveling, speaking, and a little city near us called Granite Bay, some folks felt like there needed to be a church launched in Granite Bay. And they came to my wife, Carol, and I said, would you go up to Granite Bay and plant a church? And I said, no. You know that verse in the Bible says, Lord, here am I, send somebody else? I applied that <laughs> verse, okay? <clears throat> I did not want to do it. And uh, now, I never had, this is embarrassing to admit, I never had the guts to tell anybody why I didn't want to do it. Uh, basically, I was afraid. I was afraid we'd try to start a church and it would flop and I'd feel like a failure. I was afraid we'd try to start a church and nobody'd come. I was afraid we'd try to start a church and people would come and I wouldn't like them. I was afraid we'd try to start a church, people would come, but no help would come. I was afraid we'd try to start a church, people would come, help would come, and then I'd have to raise money, you know, and build a building and all this kind of stuff. And, I, and it was so easy just to not serve God. It was easy for those guys not to build a wall. It's always easier to not do the stuff God's called us to do. And I was just afraid. And finally, I took the coward's way out. And I said, look, I'll coach you. I'll help you gather a core group. We'll call in a pastor. I'd done that before. Uh, but I said, under no circumstances will I be the pastor of this church. I think God loves, oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I, uh, I started, we did a prayer meeting, and about 25 people showed up, did a second prayer meeting, and attendance skyrocketed to 28. And... <laughs> 
And I just thought this thing isn't going to happen. And this friend of mine named Dave Olson and I said, well, let's try a preview service. I think it was America's first ever preview service. And it was launched because I thought, let's try a test service. When nobody comes, I won't have to do this. Okay? So we tried a preview service. We, it's granite-based, so we rented a country club, a tennis country club. They have an upstairs room where about 100 people maximum can fit in that upstairs room. I arrive, and I walk into this upstairs room, and there are about 80 chairs set up. Well, I took down 40 chairs so it would look full. Okay? And... It starts raining. I took Mr. Faith here. I took down another row of chairs. I thought nobody's coming to this thing. I have no explanation for this other than God. 162 people show up. We put all the chairs back up, sat them down, uh, ran a video link down to, the, down to the lobby. We had the first ever video overflow room that I'm aware of. And, and it was interesting because I, I get up and we basically worshiped and we taught the Bible. But I'm looking out there and I'm going, I think a lot of these folks aren't Christians. Okay? They were pretty sharp looking. So I thought, I'm going to give, and I'm kidding, I'm going to give an invitation. So at the end of the message, which I love the fact that you do that here, at the end of the message, I give an invitation, and at our very first ever service, a sea of hands goes up indicating they've prayed and received Christ as their Savior and Lord. And the problem is, I thought we were one and done, no more services. So at the end of that service, I just get up and I say, hey, thanks for coming. Uh, we don't have a church. And I just looked out there and said, we'll do this again in a month, okay? I remember once a month church is about right. Uh, no, I'm <laughs> kidding, okay? And so a month later, we do a second service. 226 people show up. Same thing happens. We worship, teach the Bible, people meet Christ, all that kind of stuff. Folks, it is 15 years later. We now have 12 of those sites with who knows how many thousands of people going to them. And we, I've had, my kids have made commitments to Christ in my own church. I, God has done stuff I never imagined possible. Okay? I've seen more people meet Christ, more churches get planted. I have seen... Uh, my wife and I, her brother, who we've been praying for for 25 years, and her sister have met Christ in our church. Um, I've watched God do more stuff in my family and in our community and around the world than I have ever dreamt possible. And what I want to say to you this morning is this. I almost missed the whole thing for one reason. Fear. We have a definition of fear we use at Bayside, and here it is. Fear is the dark room where negatives develop. Fear is the dark room where negatives develop, okay? And I almost missed, here's the deal, I almost missed the 10 best years of my life because of fear. And what I want to say to you before I go on is this. Any of you listening to this, God's calling you to do something. God's calling you to start something. God's calling you to change something. God's calling some of you to give something significant and you're a little afraid to give it or start it or serve there. If so, you could be on the first day of the best next 10-year run of your life. Go for it. It's going to be the start of the best next 10 years for you. But it won't happen if I let fear and discouragement tie me up and bind me up. Refresh your spirit. Rely on God. Refocus on serving even when it's scary. When they, you know, I love this phrase. When they got discouraged, when they were afraid, what do they do? It says, we continue to work. In other words, roll up your sleeves. Go back to work on your marriage. Back to work in your church. Back to tithing. Back to giving. Back to a small, go back to that kind of stuff and watch God work. And the last point is this. The last thing Nehemiah I kept at was this, refuse to give up. Refuse to give up. 
I love this. At one point, they actually quit building the wall. They get so discouraged, and Nehemiah rallies them with these words. He says, after I looked things over, I stood up, and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then I love what he adds next. He says, first of all, remember the Lord. And then the second thing he's going to say is, remember, there are some things worth fighting for. And he says, and fight for your brothers and for your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. And he says, man, refuse to give up. He says, remember the Lord and remember there are some things worth fighting for. One of my favorite stories about this kind of hope and bouncing back from discouragement. They've been in failure for 92 years, but they didn't stay there. They bounced back. Some of you listening to this, you're going, man, last year has not been a good year. Can I bounce back? Is there hope? Can I bounce back in my, can my marriage bounce back? Can my teenagers bounce back? Can our church bounce back? Can my ministry bounce back? Can my small group bounce back? Can my business bounce back? I've lost my home, lost a marriage. Can I bounce back? friend of mine says the most emotional day of his life was his first day of Little League Baseball. He says, I was eight years old, and everybody's eight to ten, so I'm the smallest kid on the team. The uniform hung off me like it was on a coat hanger, and he said, and it got worse. I lived in Iowa. Every relative I had for hundreds of miles came to watch my Little League Baseball game. He said, 60 of them. He said, it got worse. The game starts. He said, I played, take a guess, right field. Because even when you're, you know, this young, you know why you're in right field. You're in right field because you're lame. And he said, and it got worse. I was up three times that day and struck out every time. And he said, it got worse. It's the seventh and last inning of the game. And bases are loaded. There are two outs. We're behind by one run. I'm up. He said, I went to the plate and I stood there and I just shook. And he said, I realize I'm going to have to get, he, the coach is going, go ahead, get in there. And he said, I'm thinking, pinch hitter, I, I haven't touched the ball, okay? And the coach, come on, get up there, everybody plays, take your swings. And he said, as I start stepping in the box, I realize nobody's sitting down anymore. On this side, there are 200 people, and they are standing up. Some of them, you've been to Little League games, they're holding onto the screen, screaming, okay? And on, on my side, they're standing up, and they're screaming as well. Nobody's sitting down. And he said, I'm under pressure. I've never been under he said, I get up to the, he said, the second I stood up, I knew I had no chance of getting a hit because the pitcher, he was 6'8 and had a beard. At least that's how it looked to an eight-year-old, okay? And he said, I stand up there, and the pitcher wound up and just threw it in. He said, I never even saw it. All I heard was the umpire go, strike one, big cheer from their side. Goes back out, next pitch comes in. I didn't even hear that one. All I heard, strike two. He said, I stood out of the box shaking. And he says, as I stand out of the box, I realized it dawned on me. These 200 people are screaming for me to strike out. These 200 people are screaming for me to get a hit and win the game. You ever been under pressure like this? He said, I stood back in, and he thought, I'm going to get a hit. I'm, he said, I decided to start swinging during his windup. He said, the pitcher wound up, and he says, as he started to throw, I, timed it. I started swinging during his windup. I saw the ball. I swung as hard as I could and missed. I heard the ball hit the catcher's mitt. I heard the umpire yell, strike three, you're out, game over. And then he said, I heard something I will never forget as long as I live. 
200 people and an audible groan from all everybody on that side and all 60 of my relatives and I knew I'd failed and I'd struck out and I began the walk, longest walk of my life back to the dugout. Walked in the dugout, sat down, pulled my hat over my eyes, pulled my jacket over and just sat there and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. It was the last game of the day. Cars were all leaving and it got real quiet and, and it just, it was about six o'clock at night and I'm just standing there sobbing, going, my life's over, there's no future, everybody knows. And all the, you know, sensitive nine and 10 year old boys are. He said, they weren't a jerk, geek, nerd, idiot. He says, that didn't help either, I'm just sobbing. And pretty soon everybody's gone and I'm still sitting in the dugout, sobbing my eyes out. And then I heard a noise from somewhere near the pitcher's mound. And he said, I heard this voice say, hey son, get back up, the game ain't over. He said, I heard it again. Hey, son, get back up. The game ain't over. I picked my jacket up and dried off my eyes, and it was kind of fuzzy for a second. I'd been crying for so long. He said, I looked out there. All of my relatives are in the field, all of them. And he's all 60 of them. And my dad's on the pitcher's mound, and he's got a mitt and a ball, and he keeps going, hey, son, get back up. Game ain't over. I looked over there. The bat's right where I left it. So, so I kind of sheepishly walked out there, and he said, my dad was awesome. He just was on the mound. He was saying, hey, son, game ain't over. Here you go. Threw a pitch, swung and missed. He said, that's okay. Game ain't over. Threw a second pitch, swung and missed. He said, he said about the 15th pitch. My dad just kept smiling. Everybody's cheering. He said, game ain't over. He said, I, he threw it right down the middle and I went, whack, line drive in the left field. He said, I'm at home plate going, yes. He said, my dad goes, what are you doing? Run. Okay, where's first base? Never been there. So, uh, run down to first base. He goes, come to first base. The center fielder throws it. The left fielder throws it to center. I run to second. Center fielder throws it to right field where my uncle Harold, who was blind, is playing. Okay? <laughs> so, he goes, I round third. He goes, he goes, as I round third, he goes, they've thrown the ball to a blind guy, man. I'm going to score. He goes, I run as fast as I could. I dive across home plate. I slide there. I jump up, and I'm dusting myself off. And then I saw him, about three feet away, it was my dad. And tears are streaming down his face. And he just looked at me and said, son, you're safe at home. And that day turned into the best day. Because as the sun set on that little baseball field, all 60 of my relatives carried me off the field cheering. And my dad's words as we got in the car with us, told you the game wasn't over. If Jesus were going to say something to you today, walk up to you, I actually believe here's what he'd say. I don't care if you've struck out. I don't really care about what the last game was like. I don't care about your last year. Get back up. The game isn't over. And as you get back up, God will be with you. It's a privilege to be with you. God bless you. Have a great day.